0: Well, good morning, RCC. Good morning. All right, good. You had your coffee, you slept in late. You guys are crushing life. Uh, my name is Ben Seaman. I serve on staff here as our lead minister, and we're excited that you're here. Again, just want to reiterate what Tyler said. If this is your first Sunday with us, make sure you let us know at the connection point. We have a free gift that we love to give you. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. <clears throat> this might be a surprise to some of you, but I'm really good looking. Um, and I actually get mistaken. You guys need to wake up. Seriously, man. It's 11 o'clock. The 930 is way more engaged in my awesome humor. Uh, I get mistaken a lot for a uh, Hollywood actor. I know we all have our cross to bear. Some of us are good looking and some of us have a face for radio. Uh, I get mistaken a lot for uh, this guy, Patton Oswalt. Yes. You g- yeah. Just think about it, right? Some of you said, wow. All right. Be quiet. All right. He's not ugly. Um, so uh, some of us uh, are just blessed with good genes, and we get mistaken a lot for famous people. Uh, my brother uh, is ugly, and he gets mistaken for Brad Pitt, so, you know, whatever. Actually, actually looks like Peter Krause, the, uh, the one of the dads in Parenthood, or the brother in Six Feet Under, whatever show you caught him on. And so sometimes it's fun to have your identity mistaken. And actually, I've given autographs on Patton's behalf, because, you know, why not? Like, it's their, it's their reality. Let's just keep them having fun. And so I would give autographs, and they, you know, unbeknownst to them, they thought they were meeting the real person, and, and they would leave. Sometimes it's fun to have your identity mistaken, isn't it? Sure it is, but sometimes it's, it's not. My, uh, my first student ministry position uh, was at a really small town outside of Cincinnati, a town of 900. There was one four-way stop sign. You had to drive like 45 minutes to Starbucks or any grocery store worth you know any sense of healthy food it was a food desert for sure and uh when i got there i met uh i met a gal uh one of our students she she's a great great person uh kind of rough around the edges sort of if you're sensitive and you like hallmark cards she'd probably run you over so uh, we got along great it was a great relationship And uh, but she was having a a tough time my first year there and sort of sat her down after church one Sunday and actually it was Wednesday night during youth group. And I asked her, I said, hey, what's what's going on uh, in your life? And she began to tell me kind of her story. And so she was essentially uh, a crack baby and mom was uh, out of the picture. Dad was in jail, uh, pretty much the duration of her childhood. And so she got uh, moved from Cincinnati to uh, this really small community uh, living with her grandparents. And her grandparents were pretty pretty conservative, pretty heavy-handed with uh, the rules, and were just worried that she would grow up and be, you know, sort of this problem child. So she didn't really have a, a man to love her and a father to, you know, set the standard of what love and beauty actually is for, for her as a young woman. And she told me um, the week before she I'm sorry, the year before I arrived at this church, that she was uh, talking to a boy. They were, they were dating, and so this is right, but like MySpace was still a thing. Remember those days? Uh, and so uh, Mark Zuckerberg was still in college, and students were just starting to text more than, than call people. Remember those days? You had to like physically go to a wall with a string and say hello you know, nobody says goodbye anymore. I don't know if you realize that or not. So she's texting this boy that she likes late at night in her bedroom, which, you know, we should do a series on technology. Not a good idea, parents. Uh, And so she's texting a a boy, and the boy asks her basically to send her a suggestive photo to herself. And so parents, I love you, uh, but I get paid to tell the truth, okay? Sexting is a thing, all right? Your head's in the sand if you don't think Uh, your son or daughter has ever been put in a compromising situation. See, I thought sexting was something you did after you were dating as a sign of like, oh, they love me, and and they trust me. Actually, students do this just on their own, even like even if they're not dating or interested in somebody, and so she texted back like, "This isn't me. I don't want to do this. Uh, this isn't you know the kind of person I want to be." But like a typical high school guy, he kept pressing, pressing, pressing to for her to stroke his ego, and she finally gave in. And he said, "You know, we'll just keep this between us." Um, and hey, wouldn't you know it? High school guys lie. Hello, welcome to humanity. And uh, she woke up, and the next day went to school, and everybody had her picture on their phone. Sometimes it's not fun to have your identity mistaken, is it? And uh, as the country song goes, everybody dies famous in a small town. And she was defined by that moment the rest of her years in high school and even beyond. One of my favorite bands, uh, I, grew up <laughs> I grew up on Metallica, Nirvana, and Pearl Jam. I've kind of calmed down a little bit. So now I'm into like Mumford and Sons, the Avett Brothers, which is my favorite band, the Avett Brothers. But there's this little folk band out of Oregon called Blind Pilot. <clears throat> and they wrote a song called The Story I Heard. And this lyric is always really, sh- it's always struck me. And the lyric goes like this, the story I heard is that people are bored right? We're just looking for purpose and meaning, right? People are bored, but the measures we take to wrestle with our Lord, all the money you take and all the memories you spill, will He, God, measure your time or will He measure your will? Sometimes it's not fun to lose our identity. Sometimes we get lost in thinking that uh, marriage, relationships, money, pay raises, Uh, Getting our kids involved in 87 million things will give us some sort of, of life, and we go to great lengths to wrestle with our God, and to wrestle with our own internal wars. And see, this is why we're in this series called Finding Your Way Back to God, because the story that Jesus tells that highlights what Blind Pilate has been singing about, it's the story of humanity. Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son because he says it, because everybody will wonder, can I find my way back to God? And so because we know, he knows that we will wonder Is there a God that will take me back despite all of that I've done, all the things that have been done to me? Jesus lays out this story called a parable that says, yes, not only can you find your way back to God, but I'll lay out the process. And so the process is what we've been going through, these five awakenings that we all have. Whether you consider yourself religious or not is irrelevant. We've all had these. And the first one uh, is the awakening to longing, where we all ask ourselves, is there more to this life? Is there more to this nine-to-five job, parenting, money, sex, uh, you know, drugs, alcohol, whatever we do to find meaning and fulfillment? Or is this sort of it? And then at the end of our lives, everything just sort of kind of goes in the box, and we go into this eternal dream where we fall asleep, and that's it. We're out of our consciousness. The second awakening is the awakening to regret. Like, what do we do when we've gone away from God or away from our responsibilities, we've run from relationships, and we start coming to our senses. Can we actually go back to God? And last week, we talked about the awakening to help, right? Like, <clears throat> if I go back to God, if I start going to church for the first time, what is that experience like? Have you? Do you remember that, the first time you ever went to a church? Maybe, you, like me, you grew up in, in the church, and you've never had really that experience. But Look, it's a big deal when people come the first time to hear, and it's a big deal when you invite your friends. We take that very seriously here, because when people come to church for the first time, part of maybe what they're asking is, is there a God that actually loves me and help, can help make sense of my life? And so today, the fourth awakening is the awakening to love. Now, the particle son has come home. We talked about that last week. But what happens in that exchange? And I think for a lot of us, if you grew up in the church is that Christianity is sort of about the cross and that's it. In other words, you become a Christ follower, you go to the cross, receive salvation, and then you sort of move on to like learn bigger and better things and you get debates with people on social media about when Jesus is going to return, right? The next thing you know, all you own is canned foods for the second coming and you're wearing like pajama pants all the time and you have no friends, right? The point of Christianity and the point of the gospel isn't that you go beyond the cross, is that you go deeper into it. In other words, we all have layers. We have stories. We have false identities. We live our, our false self. When people ask, you know, is this person extroverted or introverted. We talk about our personality, and that's often our personality is what we project on people to get what we want, make sure people like us, and that we can actually move forward and advance in life. And a lot of that stuff is our net, our false self projecting uh, on uh, to other people. And so we come today going, okay, the, fa- the son has come home now what? And so in Luke 15, we see this beautiful exchange that the son actually is going to awaken to love. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 15. Uh, If not, it'll be on the screen. In Luke 15, 21, Jesus continues the story. He says, the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I love what the father does. He doesn't even listen to him, right? He goes, but the father said to his servants, like he totally ignores his son. How many of us, right, we've been in the doghouse with our spouse and we sat in the car a little longer than we should, trying to come up with a plan, right? Maybe we bought flowers or candy or something that connects with our spouse, and hopefully that this would be a peace offering, so maybe we can stay uh, at our house and maybe sleep on the couch that night and not look for another place to lay our head. But when the son comes home, it looks like as if the father is just ignoring his plea for forgiveness, just overemphasizing the fact that you're loved. Like, we'll have time to talk about what it was like to eat with pigs, son. We'll have time to talk about what it was like to party your brains out and sleep with whoever you wanted and drink and shoot up whatever you... We have time for that. We'll have time for that. But right now, we need to celebrate. And so the father says, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and now he's alive again. It's really important to know this, friends, that in the New Testament, Jesus never says you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Jesus says you're either dead or you're alive. And there's a lot of us that wear the label Christian, but we're dead inside. We have no life in us. And that's what Jesus came to give us, life to the fullest, not religion not another label for us to hide behind. I read this quote this week from Richard Warr. He said, uh, religion is the safest place to hide from God. And, w- and we do that a lot, don't we? And so Jesus never uses the language, you're a sinner or you're a, you're a Christian or a non-Christian. He just says people are either dead or they're alive, which I thought was kind of interesting, even how we use language today. At the end, he says, uh, he was lost and found. So they began to celebrate. And what's beautiful about this moment is that if, <clears throat> if coming back to the Father was sort of um, the salvation moment, like when we come to the Lord and we say, okay, we get it, we, we're repenting of our sin, we're believing the Jesus story, we want to confess him as Lord, and we want to express all of that awesomeness in the waters of baptism, then we would say when he awakens to love— Not only does he receive salvation, but the prodigal son is going to receive gifts of his salvation. It's like when you follow Jesus, it's like Christmas every day. Not that we should treat Jesus like Santa, okay, in commercialism, but the son is going to realize how much the love of God is going to be lavished on him, as 1 John chapter 4 says in the back of your New Testament. The son receives a ring, a robe, and sandals. In verse uh, 22 of chapter 15, the father says, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. The robe was a symbol of rest. Now, I don't know about you, but in my family, uh, I wake up first. I like my quiet time. And so it's my job to start the coffee. So I want to be married for a long time. And so caffeinated spouse is a good spouse. And uh, I like uh, starting the coffee, sitting on the couch, and kind of sinking into my robe. It kind of envelops me, kind of makes me feel like a, I don't know, like a king or somebody special. Maybe I have a a complex and I need to watch Dr. Phil. But there's a a sense of comfort that a robe brings you, doesn't it? And it's the same, the same is true for this prodigal son, that a robe was a symbol uh, of uh, rest. You see, in Ephesians 4, 24, Paul says, put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and in holiness. See, here's what's most true about you. You ready? What is most true about you, okay, religion aside, denominationalism aside, YouTube, people yelling at each other aside, the most true thing about you is this, that when you were born... Uh, in uh, the hospital that you were born in or the home or maybe you've got a cool story and you were born in the woods like I would love to know more about that I'm always up for a good story but when you were born the most the truest thing about you is this that you were a beloved son or daughter of God like before you like could like wipe yourself off after you went to the bathroom right Th- that 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 real you were loved by God before you knew how to walk before you could be assertive and think for yourself and make decisions on your own as you were totally dependent and relying on your parents or siblings to take care of you the most true thing about yourself is that you were loved by God but here's the deal all of us at some point wonders there's more to this life so we take off this this robe. We take off this identity, and we go after things that we think will f- fulfill us: education, money, uh, relationships, sex, alcohol, uh, being narcissistic, like w- 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 whatever it is for you we would call that in the spiritual world your death story whatever it is that you thought would fill your life up and destroying you uh, these are the things that we went after for our new identity thinking that it would give us a promise and it would make us feel good and we would love ourselves better. We can't really love ourselves because if the gospel is true, we don't know ourselves apart from Jesus. And so when the prodigal son comes back, he's put on this beautiful coat that uh, Paul says is a coat of righteousness and a coat of holiness. Now, it's 11 o'clock, but I need you to hang with me here. We're going to have a philosophy session, all right? I hope the coffee you're drinking is strong. Anybody in the world, ethically, and we'll talk about this more when we go through Galatians in two weeks, we're going to challenge the idea of freedom. We're going to call it live free or die. Anybody can be good and moral, and anybody can be bad and evil. It doesn't make you a Christian or religious at all. And so we we like to, in the spiritual realm and in the church world, we like to throw around this word like hypocrites or, you know, I thought they were a Christian or this or that. Anybody can ethically be good. Like, we have laws for that. Like, you shouldn't kill people. You should obey the speed limit, in theory, unless it's a rental. Then drive it like a rental, right? We all have the, I'm just saying, we all have, um, we all have this ethics within us, right? And so there's this morality within us. But you cannot be holy. You cannot be righteous on your own merit. You see, to be declared ethically righteous, hang with me, and ethically holy, somebody has to be 100% perfect in their life. And so Jesus knew you were going to freak out. And Jesus knew that you were going to be called a hypocrite. And Jesus knew that you were going to have kids. And while you love them, some days you just want to kill them. And so what Jesus did for you on your behalf is lived that perfect life for you. And so when you come home to God and you receive the gift of salvation, express that publicly in baptism, you are gifted, you are cloaked with holiness. You are cloaked with righteousness. There's nothing ethical in this. You can't donate enough money (laughs) to a charity or a church to be holy, or to be righteous. What happens when someone is holy and righteous is that somebody lived a perfect life on your behalf and has been given it given to you. Does this make sense? But what happens in religion and theology, we like to say, "Well, I'm not a good Christian." Why would you ever settle for being good when you've been declared righteous? When you've been declared holy? Anybody can be good. I mean, anybody that's committed murder <laughs> can turn their life around and be good. But you can't be holy. You can't be righteous without the work of Christ on the cross. And then you're like, okay, well, I'm going to still freak out because that's what I do. Look, my hand's shaking. Okay, so after I become a Christian and I like cuss out my, my kid and, you know, uh, go crazy and lose it on the ball field this summer am I any less holy? Well, your holiness was declared over you based on how Jesus lived. So the answer is yes, you're still holy. Isn't God a terrible parent? Like if God wrote a parenting book, like he gives, ha- he gives the estate to his son, and then his son leaves him, and then, and then the schlep comes back, and he's like, let's have a feast. Ah, but this is why God's love is so incredible. This is why the New Testament says God doesn't give you his love. He lavishes it over you. Like when you take a shower, or when you're uh, standing under you know, a, a waterfall on a summer break, this is the love of God that's been given to you. So, so don't ever ask me if you're a good Christian or not, because I hope you don't settle for that. You've been declared righteous and you've been declared holy only on the merit of Jesus himself. All right, that's another sermon. Let's keep going. The second one is this. He gets a ring, which is a symbol of security. And in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, Paul says, you, people that come back to God, you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. To the praise of his glory. Now, that's a lot of words, all right? So, here's what I want you to focus on there's two images a seal and a deposit. Both are what the Holy Spirit is for you as a gift. Uh, as a Christ follower. Number one, a seal is God's imprint, the way you would seal uh, a stamp to an an envelope. Uh, In the first century, people asked Jesus, you know, are you going to overtake the Roman empire? And if you are, do we have to pay taxes, right? Wouldn't that be great? I'm a Christian, I have to pay taxes, right? Man, this church would blow up in a heartbeat. But Jesus looks at him and says, oh, no, 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 give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You see that coin that, that 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 you have to pay? We have you know we have dead presidents on our dollar bills. They, they would have um, an imprint of that Caesar on those coins. And so he, Jesus effectively is saying Caesar's imprint is on the money. That money belongs to him. But what he's but what he's saying without saying it is, I am the God of the universe. My imprint is on every man, woman, and child that I let be born in this thing called, life. So so any politician can think, right? Any politician can think that they're running their country and doing their own thing and Jesus is like, "Yeah, whatever. Doesn't matter if the president's Republican or Democrat or good or bad. No, no, no. My imprint, what I own, what's my property are the very people that are walking among this earth." So a politician can think that he owns whatever he or she owns whatever they want. But Jesus is saying, "I, I own everybody." And what the Holy Spirit is, it's a mark on your life that you belong to someone. You belong to something much greater than yourself. The second imagery Paul says is that it's a deposit, which is a promise. Now, when I was uh, dating my wife, Crystal, uh, we dated long enough that I believed if I got on one knee and asked her, Will you marry me?" that the relationship was strong enough that she would actually say yes. And so I took her to where we were going to be married six months, you know after you know, she would say yes, and it was a beautiful park overlooking uh, downtown Cincinnati. Not so beautiful in February. I actually almost fell because the steps were a sheet of ice, so you know, one, good for me and my romantic abilities. So when I got on one knee, I pulled out a ring and I said, "Will you marry me?" Now, That moment of engagement is great. Afterwards, I surprised her. We had a big party at the Cheesecake Factory. Friends and family were there. It was awesome. Now, as awesome as an engagement is, there's a better day, right? The wedding is coming. And so when you find your way back to God and you receive the Holy Spirit, not only is it a mark on your life, but it's also an engagement ring, that while you're here on earth, there's a better day coming. Not not that we should be disconnected from our world, for heaven's sakes, do not be disconnected, especially as a Jesus follower. We need Christians in every realm, in medicine, in politics, in schools. It's not that we just sit and wait for the, you know, the Jesus bus to come and take us to heaven like, you know, like a weird cult, but it's a promise that if we wander away from God, right, or if we yell at our kids, or our season of life is just kind of crazy, we're not functioning like we normally would, there's this promise we have, that as great of a day of our salvation is, as great of a day as your baptism was, there's a better day coming. This is just a, this is just a symbol to tell you that, that there's a greater reality coming, and this is what the prodigal son gets. This is what we get when we come back and find our way back to the Lord. Lastly, he received sandals, which were a symbol of acceptance. In the first century, the hired help and the slaves would not wear sandals. So it's likely the whole journey back from you know wherever he was hanging out, at the pig farm, all the way back to his dad's house, whether that was a couple weeks, a couple months, he probably he walked barefoot. And there's another story that Jesus tells about the Samaritan. And in the first century, there's all these switchbacks, right? So it's likely that he felt rocks cutting his feet. It's likely that he had to run from animals that wanted to attack him. And because of the switchbacks, it was real easy for shady people to hide behind big boulders and jump out and rob you. And so when he finds his way back to the father, he's given sandals as a sign of acceptance. Because people in that house that wore the sandals, were people that belonged to that family. See, God doesn't just love you. He actually likes you (laughs) and wants to spend time with you. So much so that in John 15, 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my father, I have been made known to you. Brennan Manning in his book, Abba Child, it says, define yourself radically as the one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. God's love for you and his choice of you constitute your worth. Accept that and let it become the most important thing in your life. And our prayer for love this week is this. God, if you're real, make yourself real to me and awaken in me the awareness that I am your unconditionally loved child. Check out Rosemary's story and how she found her way back to God as she awakened to love.
1: I went to church and um, I went because I was, we were supposed to, and so I did. It wasn't every Sunday. It was when I felt I needed him. Did the teenager things, dabbled in alcohol and, 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 and drugs, and I don't know what I was looking for. Um, but I wasn't finding it. You know, some of those um, choices that I made as a, as a teenager you know, just filled me with regret. You know, I wish they weren't in my story. I wish I could just start over. I ended up in a relationship and, um, and I was pregnant and I, um, I ended up having an abortion at 19. And that was really hard. I didn't want God to be there seeing what I was going through seeing what I was doing. So in my head, I just didn't, I, you know, my prayers was that he he wasn't looking at me. He wasn't listening or watching over me. When I was 20, I ended up getting pregnant again and um, carried my daughter to term and I became a mom. Um, Shortly after that, she was about a year old, um, I started going back to work and I met, um, I met my, uh, my soon to be husband. And I felt like that was my second chance at God put him in my path for me, to to help guide me. We would go to church, um, and we would go consistently for a while, and then things were good, so he wasn't as needed in our head, but so obviously we weren't going about it the right way, we weren't having the relationship. We did our best, we tried as best as we could, but when we finally had the opportunity to move to Illinois, my at that time my freshman had said okay but we have to go to church every weekend. We agreed and I researched some churches found one that I that I thought the whole family would like. You know knowing that we had the best intentions we were still having a hard time um, with uh, working things out we were a blended family this one particular Sunday that we both remember we were having a very bad week Um, and had gotten to the point where I was ready to move back home with my girls and I was done I was ready to throw in the towel and the pastor came to the the stage and was talking about there has to be some people in the audience that um, that are having a hard time that are ready to be done with it marriages and we looked at each other and it was just it just seemed like he was speaking directly to us my husband grabbed my hand and um, he said, you know, we're not done. We're still we're still working this through. You know, God moved us here for a reason. We both made the decision to to really try and bring that relationship um, into the family, to bring our girls, um, you know, for, to make sure that they all went to Stuco, went to services every Sunday. Um, that we went into a small group. So it was new to us. It was it was different and um, a little awkward in the beginning. Um, but just because I knew my story and um, that bothered me, it plagued me. And I wouldn't talk about it with my husband. So it was one of those things I kept in the dark. That was my burden to, to carry, my cross to bear. And I was in that jail cell with the doors wide open and sitting there punishing myself, even though I had already been forgiven. He was there and he was holding my hand. And so, um, And so now I know, and so when I have those days, it's not, it's not the same. And even with him knowing what I've done, I am forgiven and I'm still his daughter.
0: What a great story. Um, I, I, wanna, I wanna make you aware of one other, one other gift. We had a lot of people out of town uh, due to the holiday, people traveling. And I want to make you aware of one other gift uh, that happens when we find our way back to God in baptism. Uh, We have uh, these finding way back to God cards on your seat back in front of you. And so as Tyler had mentioned, if you if you're ready to be baptized, I would encourage you to grab one of these cards before you leave, fill it out and turn it into our Connection Point volunteer. We want to celebrate with you. I want to close by sharing one more verse with you out of Colossians chapter two. Paul says, in him, Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self was ruled by the flesh. It was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now that's a lot of stuff going on. And so I talked about Uh, in week one, all the different ways that you can participate in the Old Testament and ceremonies that if you did it, it was initiation into the people of God. And so in the Old Testament, you've got hand washings, you've got, you know, sacrificing animals, you've got Day of Atonement stuff. But the last thing that Jesus instituted before he left that says, when you do this, you're identifying yourself with my life, my story, and my mission is baptism. And I don't know if you caught it there in that text, but in the waters of baptism, Jesus says he's performing a spiritual circumcision where he's cutting back the layers of our wondering, cutting back the layers of that season of rump springer where we were running around. And there's also subtle tones of him kicking the chair of our own autonomy, doing life on our own. You see, friends, when the high priest sacrificed the animals in the Old Testament, he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Holy of Holies. And so what Paul is doing, right? Baptism isn't just this thing that you do because you're religious. No, no, no. Paul is saying that in baptism, this old sinful flesh is being cut away. The chair of your own independence is being knocked out so that Jesus can sit on his mercy seat and so that you and I can come home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, the amazing, incredible, overwhelming love that you give us. Uh, We thank you that you want us to find our way back to you, Uh, maybe for the first time or maybe once again. I pray that, Lord, that this church would not be a church that uh, keeps it to ourselves, that if, it's, if this connects with them, that they'd be willing to invite a friend uh, next weekend as we celebrate baptisms. Lord, I just pray for that person that's thinking about getting baptized, that they would do it for themselves and receive the gift of your salvation uh, through the ring, the robe, the sandals, and the cutting away of our own desire to run around and do whatever we want. We thank you for your love. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.